0: I think industry is doing a good job of trying to make the best decisions with the information they have right now to move forward. They are learning, there are mistakes made, and they're trying to figure out how can we adjust midstream or in some instances, okay, we're too far down, we're going to have to wait until maybe the next block or you know the next time where we can really try something different.
1: A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium giving young animals a healthy start. Atiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable ways. DSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. AB vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of The Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Dr. Darren Karcher, who is an associate professor and extension poultry specialist in the Department of Animal Sciences at Purdue University. Dr. Karcher is directly engaged with stakeholders across multiple poultry sectors using his applied research as a platform to deliver science-based extension programs. His research projects are focused on addressing industry concerns in both meat birds and laying hens, with an emphasis on animal well-being, food safety, and quality as impacted by management practices, physiology, and nutrition. Dr. Karcher received the Poultry Science Association Fibro Extension Award in 2016, as well as the 2021 Purdue Faculty Engagement Scholar Award for his outstanding contribution to the poultry industry and his extension collaborations. Welcome to the show, Dr. Karcher. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Is your fall semester started yet? Uh, yeah, we're about two weeks into classes here at Purdue. Awesome. How's it going? Uh, so far, so good. The nice good. thing is I don't have a teaching requirement, so Excellent. I just hear from all my colleagues how it's going.
2: You get to help people who are lost in the building.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, great. Before we jump into some of our topics for today, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and the story of how you came to be a professor at Purdue University?
0: Sure. So my parents actually own a mail order hatchery. So I've been working with poultry my entire life. You were born into it. Yeah, exactly. And very familiar with uh, small flock people. And so got my degree in ag education from the Ohio State University. And as everybody was getting ready to go into take their teaching exams, I was asked if I wanted to do a master's in poultry genetics. And said, sure. So went to University of Wisconsin-Madison and did my master's in poultry genetics. Stumbled upon my professor here, Dr. Todd Applegate, and he offered me a degree uh, to do a PhD at Purdue. And so I came here and earned my PhD in growth and development. And then I went to Michigan State, spent about nine years there as the poultry specialist, and then came back here to Purdue University in 2016.
2: Awesome. Very cool. So you uh, you really started out from poultry right with the get go. Exactly. That's not very common anymore.
0: No, no. Yeah. And it creates a unique scenario, right? I think I have a little bit different passion about it. Yeah. Just because I've been around it all my life. So
2: So from that standpoint, you know, fewer and fewer Americans are raised in homes with direct exposure to agriculture. Has this affected kind of Your strategies with teaching or or recruitment
0: efforts to agriculture degrees in your experience? So, yes and no, right? Um, I agree that we have a lot of disconnect now from agriculture, but we're seeing this explosion of backyard poultry. And so now we're getting a lot of people, students that have had some poultry exposure or poultry experience. And so it makes the conversation a little more interesting because they don't understand or appreciate the commercial side but at least they understand the chickens and they like having the birds around and so it's trying to help them bridge that gap of you know it could be a hobby or it could be your livelihood and let's explore what it could look like if it became your livelihood so it opens some different doors for them
2: yeah absolutely that's kind of an untapped pool of future poultry scientists right
0: there yeah that's what i'm hoping yeah
2: Um, I actually did notice among your publications, you have a chapter on basic housing and management in a book entitled Backyard Poultry Medicine and Surgery, a Guide for Veterinary Practitioners. That really stood out to me because there's not a lot of resources available for those backyard poultry folks. So that's very valuable. Um, I'm glad that as part of your extension efforts, you're reaching out to them, presumably based on your background as well. Um, Can you give us some info that you think maybe we could do a better job of disseminating to small flock producers and backyard poultry people?
0: Well, I think the the biggest disconnect, and I've had this comment made to me before, is that um, backyard people have a very hard time understanding the principles of how we may do things at a larger scale and how that can apply to them. And so there's a lot of times they'll make the comments that, wow, you don't even know what you're talking about because you only deal with large commercial producers. Granted, that may be true, but if you can understand the principles of why we have brooding temperatures and why we do certain things to listen and watch our birds, it applies to them. So I think we have to really think about how do we repackage some of the things that we know are important, but really taking it to a different level so that they can understand the utility of those same principles in their poultry practice, even though they only have six birds. And so it's, you know, trying to figure out sometimes how to repackage things. The other thing that I think is really hard for small flock people is it's not like we have a lot of research being done on brooding temperatures today. Right. And so a lot of the resources that we can direct them to are things that were published in the fifties and sixties. And they feel like, oh wow, that can't be applicable today. And it's very much is. It's just trying to help them get over the hurdle of just because it's old doesn't mean that it's wrong, sometimes, but not always.
2: Yes. Yes. Teaching them how to, you know, determine what information is good information is tricky in all fields right
0: now. Oh, exactly. For exactly. Sure.
2: Well, that's awesome. That outreach is so important because I really feel like, you know, the success of backyard producers is kind of integrally tied to the success of commercial producers. And we see a huge example of that with AI outbreaks. You know, having backyard people have a stake in and an understanding of uh, epidemiology and disease transfer and biosecurity is very, very important for the health of the industry, too. So we don't do ourselves any favors by alienating the backyard people. That's for sure.
0: Well, and I think in, you know, even looking at the 2015 high path break that we had here, I think there was still a lot of finger pointing that it was coming from the small flock people. Mm -hmm. And I think this past iteration that we have had, and it appears that we're still kind of in that um, outbreak scenario, it is no longer pointing the finger because it's across the board, small flock commercial. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So I think it's even helping... Uh, Commercial producers start to think a little bit differently about. They're not just necessarily supposed blight and detriment to my livelihood. There's got to be a little bit more give and take with them because it's very important to them as well. And I think that small flock people are willing and open to some new things. But I think a lot of times it's lost in translation because it doesn't come across as anything other than you are a threat to me and that never is going to start a conversation well.
2: Yes. No. And especially if that's, you know, our future pool of poultry scientists, it's very important that we have cordial relations. So that's great. Um, I know you've designed a number of extension education programs. Could you speak a little bit about what your process is like in creating an extension program and meeting the needs of, you know, the folks you're trying to reach, uh, for example, the Shell Egg Academy?
0: Yeah. So you know, when I first started, it was very easy to kind of plug myself into some of the education events that were going on. And, you know, I'm still involved with those. But in 2018, uh, I conducted a national needs assessment of the laying hen industry. And so we sent a survey out um, across the U.S. And we asked all levels, um, so people that are in the barn all the way up to the CEOs of companies, And said, we have some questions pertaining to teaching, um, research, as well as extension and outreach. And what are some of the things that you think we need to do a better job at? Once we got that data back, it became very obvious that, you know, food safety was a primary concern, as well as animal welfare and doing a better job at training employees, And so I pulled together a advisory group of people from industry um, and allied industry and some academics. And we started the conversation of, okay, if these are the identified needs, how do we build something to address that? So in 2019, we held the first Shell Egg Academy. And the idea was that the first two or three days would be focused on live production we would have an overlap of that third day with the first day of those that were in the processing plant because we can talk about egg formation and it's important to the people that are on the live production as well as the people that are in the processing. And so we had an overlap of a day on some topics and then the end of the week was focused on the processing side. And it was an okay attendance for the first time out the door. And financially, it was not good for me, but that's (laughs) great because as soon as it was out and it was over with, then industry started asking questions of how soon are you going to do this again? And so one of the things that I've recognized is that, and I think it's true across all of our poultry industries, where sometimes there is hesitancy to jump in and support new programs until they can see the value that they're going to get from it. And so if we can start to think about how to design outreach programs that are going to be very valuable to them and have the potential for a long-term large impact, then I think you may stumble that first year or two. But after that, then I think you can hit a stride and you'll have the support from the industries saying, yes, this is something we valuably need. Um, The other thing that I've recognized is that We used to have a model where industry would come to academia because academia was the cutting edge and we were supposed to be taking the basic science and helping translate it through extension to get it out there for them to use. And that's really not how the world functions anymore. It does a little bit. But now as a commercial producer, you've got consultants, you're going to go to your allied industry people that are selling you things that are also uh, providing more services for you. And so I think the really dynamic programs moving forward is where we start to blend together academia, allied industry and consultants where, you know, everybody's got different things to bring to the table. But it um, deepens and r- enrichens that conversation that you can have as a group now because you have those multiple aspects. So it's just a different approach of how, how you move forward when you talk about outreach and extension.
2: Mm -hmm. I agree. We definitely suffer a little bit from siloing in the industry. Um, You know, we're all, to be fair, competing with each other a little bit, but there's a lot of information about just general animal husbandry practices and technologies that, you know, they shouldn't have to be seen as a competitive advantage if it's general information, especially on the animal welfare side and adapting to some of the newer, um, you know, regulations or animal welfare programs. Sharing that information is valuable to the industry as a whole. It it a rising tide lifts all ships, you know. Yep. So I absolutely agree that sharing that information is very important. Are there any specific avenues that you prefer for you know industry to contact you or to participate in uh, funding or promoting or designing these programs that you'd like to to put out there in public?
0: Yeah. So you know the easiest way is a reach out to me. <laughs> so look me up on the uh, Purdue University website and you know just reach out. Uh, The other thing is that we'll be gearing up here to do our next um, needs assessment for the industry here towards the end of this year. And we always provide an opportunity for people to give comments and, you know, more than willing to, you know, take participants that want to engage Mm -hmm. and try to give them as many uh, possibilities to, you know, give us that feedback too to say, this is a great program. It's just not working. Here's how we'd like to change it. Um, And to that point, I can tell you that the Shell Academy that we're doing now, we two weeks ago held a virtual academy that was offered in Spanish, live Mm. translation. And what frustrates me is the fact that we didn't have anybody from industry embrace that, right? Mm. So somewhere there was a mixed message because industry said this is what we want we offered it, but nobody took it up. So now hmm. I've got to rethink. So it's going back to industry and saying, okay, this is what you wanted. How can I better make sure you're aware of what we can offer as a service to help you educate those workers that you're saying you're trying to educate? Yes. So it's that constant back and forth and, and using them as my litmus test to say, okay, sorry, I missed the boat. Let's try again and see what we can do better for the next one.
2: Sometimes it takes a few tries. And unfortunately, I I always feel like the industry, and I can say this, (laughs) because let's just say I'm talking about myself. I tend to be a little (laughs) bit reactive as opposed to proactive about things. And the way things are moving so quickly now, and there are so many changes to production systems and the standards that customers are expecting, you can't afford to be reactive. You have to be proactively planning to adapt to these changes. Exactly. Uh, As far as that assessment, is that something that's sent out or is that accessible on the web to those who want to participate?
0: So usually what we'll do is, um, or what we did the first one in my plan is to do the same. We'll work with the United Egg Producers, uh, the Iowa Egg Industry Center, as well as the American Egg Board, and try to have them give us some input so they can get some useful information that they may need as their own organizations, but then ask them to help us disseminate it. And then we try to tap into uh Watt Publishing and some of the newsletters and things like that to make sure it's getting as much airtime as possible for people to to access that survey.
2: Excellent. Folks can be on the lookout for that. Good. Well, kind of changing lanes to talk a little bit about research. I know some of your work has centered on the transition to extensive housing and different production systems for layers. Um, could you tell us some about your viewpoint on that transition as an extension specialist? How is the industry handling the challenges?
0: Well, you know, it's... it's. Um... One of those things that as an academic, I can say it is so wonderful right now because there are so many things we don't know. Uh, asking those questions are amazing, right? So if you can find the funding, there's so many things we, we need to learn. At the same time, uh, I think industry is doing a good job of trying to make the best decisions with the information they have right now to move forward. They are learning. There are mistakes made and they're trying to figure out how can we adjust midstream or in some instances, okay, we're too far down. We're going to have to wait until maybe the next block or, you know, the next time where we can really try something different. And so for me, that's where uh, trying to have a very forward thinking applied research program pays off, right? So trying to keep a pulse on what are some of the issues that are faced? What are the issues that may be coming down that they haven't faced yet, but we know they're on the horizon and then trying to design research questions so we can start to answer those. So when they get to that point, there's at least something out there for them to look at and say, ah, okay, they've tried this. That didn't work very well, or maybe it worked a little bit. I think maybe we can modify it and make it work in our type of a system. So, yeah, for me, it's exciting to, to kind of see as we continue this transition to extensive housing, what can we keep doing to push the envelope, right, beyond what we see today and what it may look like in another 25 or 30 years. What do you think that will look like? Nothing like we see today.
2: Interesting. Are there any kind of hot topics in your research that you are comfortable talking about. Obviously, I know if something's not published yet, you can't necessarily speak about that. But. No,
0: we we actually, I have a team uh, that I built here at Purdue, and we got a grant funded this past year. It's a five-year grant, and the intent is to see if we can come up with a better way to design cage-free housing for laying hens moving forward. And the focus being specifically that we haven't really thought about ever looking at our production environments from the way the birds see them versus the way we see them. And so we're trying to look at it from the standpoint of if we could actually visualize how our laying hens see that cage-free environment, would we design it very differently because we're trying to get them to exhibit or to demonstrate behaviors In a different way than what we want, right? So could we reduce mislaid eggs or eggs on the floor and put them in the nest box like we're hoping they would? Or could we change the way that we light a system so that we could more easily drive them to feed or maybe not notice uh, the others in the cage to uh, negate some of the pecking and cannibalism issues that occur or understand why they pile. You know, it's really for us. I think it's awesome because we've not ever asked it from the bird's perspective of trying to understand why they do it. We always are trying to figure out how do we remedy the issue that we now have so it doesn't ever happen again. And so it's just a different way of looking at that same question.
2: That's a great observation. I haven't ever really thought about that. I, I don't really, i have very limited experience on the layer size. So forgive me, I'm coming from a broiler breeder and pullet mm-hmm. perspective, but on the piling side of things, yeah, I'm not sure I've ever really thought about why right. from their perspective.
0: They right. Do. They just do it. And, they just do it. Yeah.
2: And we're trying to stop it.
0: <laughs> exactly. So,
2: very interesting. So just generally speaking, could you talk a little bit about um, kind of compare and contrasts on the conventional versus some of the extensive systems like an aviary or enriched colony cage on the basics, uh, like nutrition requirements? Are they different? Um, are the lighting requirements different? And then, you know, obviously having that bird exposed to a much broader environment uh, raises some issues with disease transfer and food safety and mites, etc., um, there's a whole host of things to talk about, but if you could just kind of touch briefly on what you think the key differences are that you've seen in these transitions, that would be great.
0: Yep. So, you know, the the best resource or one of the major resources out there is a, a research project called the Coalition for Sustainable Egg Supply, and that was conducted from 2010 to 2015 at commercial facilities. And that was looking at conventional cages, enriched colony cages, and cage free. And there are some very easily easily digested um infographics that kind of show you the trade-offs between the different types of housing systems. What was amazing is it was one of those where if you look at the trade-offs, one would see that perhaps the enriched colony cage may have been a better option for us to be moving into. And a decision was made uh, that we were going to cage free, and that is now where we're working is in that area of cage free. So typically, you know, conventional cage compared to any extensive housing system, when we start to see them being more active, nutritionally the biggest thing is energy. Uh, there's some indications based on research projects and looking at like shell quality that we're having a change in calcium dynamics, but again, it's got to go back to basic science to really have a better understanding before we can really address it um, on the nutritional aspect. Parasites, as we move to extensive housing, we're seeing diseases and parasites that we don't typically see in conventional housing. And so if they, they being a younger vet coming into the field, are finding that as they talk to the older vets who may be getting close to exiting the field, they're like, Oh yeah, we saw this back in the 1960s and it's blowing their mind. But if you understand that's where we came from back in the sixties, we're seeing a lot of the resurgence of the same things we used to see when we were producing eggs. And so it's kind of this whole interesting going the full circle concept. Um, Skeletal things where it's a trade-off. So we see better skeletal strength um, with birds in extensive housing because they're more active compared to the conventional cage. The downside is we have keel bone fractures and deformation really starting to take a major uh, stance as a welfare concern within laying hens as we go to these extensive housing systems. What can we do to, to rectify those? I don't know that we have a clear answer. There's lots of different approaches being taken, but nobody has a silver bullet. And I'm not sure there ever will be versus it's going to be a compilation of a lot of different mitigation strategies to move the needle a little bit in the positive direction. Welfare, animal well-being. uh Anything is going to be better from the bearing cage, the conventional cage, like we do things, right? So as we go to those extensive environments, we give them that ability to express more of their natural behaviors. The downside is we get those negative behaviors that come with it, right? And so occasionally we get that piling, the cannibalism, the egg eating, the things that we don't typically see, Um But again, as we're moving to these new systems, we're figuring out how do we do some things differently to make sure that that can happen.
2: Well, that was very informative. It's very complicated, obviously. The change in production system changes everything about management. Um, I've received some questions about migration within these systems. Do you have any advice for handling the migration of the birds, impacting the density in different areas now that they're free to move around?
0: Well, and that's that whole concept of migration and uh, the social hierarchy that we know exists in poultry uh, is very complex now. We don't have a good feel for, as you walk that hen house, if you have a house of 80,000 birds with no dividers, if you pay attention, and this is where I think the egg industry um, is having to make a change, right? It was... Before having workers that could walk looking for egg jams, looking for mortality in cages, looking to make sure feed was there, water line issues. Now we need people that are true stockmen, where they're paying attention to those birds. They're picking up on the little things that are going to make a big difference potentially and not just walking the flock. So if you walk that flock of 80,000 birds, you'll notice that there will be a hen that will greet you which would suggest that they're setting up smaller social hierarchies within this large population. We don't know that, but that's what we suspect if you really pay attention as you walk the house. We have other houses where they're putting in dividers to try to limit that flock size. And in some respects, it helps. But where it tends to help the most is if something um, spooks or scares them and they start to run to the back, they hit a divider. So hopefully you don't get it all the way through that 80,000 birds. Do I know that it's truly effective? No, I, I would say that based on experiences we have had and what I'm hearing from various companies, it depends on the flock, right? You can have no issues with one flock and the next flock comes in and the behavior flightiness, everything has changed. And so I think that's what makes it that much more challenging Is It's not like we order the, uh, I'm not going to give any company name, White Bird. That White Bird shows up and it's always the exact same behavioral White Bird that we get. And so it's that raising our bar of how we do things to a whole different level that we're just now really starting to to take some strides in how do we do that as an industry.
2: Do you think there's and this is probably an obvious question, but do you think there's impact on the pullet side of things with not just, you know, introducing them to the environment that they're going to be in, but also I don't want to say socialization, but you you mentioned, you know, being startled or having a pecking order. Are there things on the pullet end of things that might be changing how they react
0: during their life? Again, we suspect there is, right? There's (laughs) got to be some things. We know the complexity of the environment, um, But if we also play into this concept of not truly understanding how the birds may see their environment, Mm -hmm. there may be some things that we just by changing lighting or changing how we color a system or very simple things that we could do that could really change the overall dynamics in that entire population. But until we, you know, get further down that basic science of really understanding how they see things and, and as much as I don't, know that it's where we want to go when we really start to understand those birds from their perspective of things then i think that's when we will really start to make some larger strides on the management side that can have those overall benefits to us as an industry Mm -hmm. that's
2: that's a good point i think people unfortunately assume that chickens are unintelligent I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think they're probably unintelligent by our standards for what we would consider, but they clearly have their own sophisticated programming going on. And again, I'm coming to this from a very simplistic broiler person perspective. Laying hens are mysterious, beautiful creatures to me. So (laughs) um, they're even more complicated. (laughs) But yes, that's a good point that even though we've been doing this, you know, since the 1950s, there's still a lot of really basic things about how the animal functions that we don't understand behaviorally it's a very good point as far as lighting you had mentioned utilizing different is it intensity or color or both to kind of guide those birds or or shape their experience of the environment could you talk a little bit about that
0: yeah so it's going to end up being both right we're we're in this um i'll call it a renaissance because it kind of is right we haven't really looked at lighting since 70s on any of our poultry species And in the last uh, five, six years, we've started to see companies pushing this type of light because it's going to increase your um, feed consumption, which is going to get you a better FCR, or we want you to use this light because it's going to give you a longer persistence of lay and all of these things. And maybe there's some science to it, and maybe there's not. Where we're at right now is trying to figure out not only is it a color wavelength that we need to be concerned about, but then going back to that intensity, right? What, and, and part of this, I'm going to tie it back to our grant. Part of this that, that really got my attention is when I met with the gentleman over in biology that this is his career is doing it in wild birds. He showed me computer images of a rooster, And what he showed me was that at like one foot, the rooster was crystal clear, right? When we hit that three foot mark, then all of a sudden it became kind of blurry. Like I needed to put my glasses on to see a little bit clearer. And when we got to five foot, like beyond telling that, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the shape of a rooster. That's what the visual model would suggest. That's how chickens see. If that's the case, And that's how they can see And our response if we, to some negative behaviors, are we dim the lights? If I couldn't see you in full light at three foot, is it really having an impact other than it makes us feel good as the producer, owner of the flock to say, yes, we're making it darker so they can't see each other? Maybe that wasn't the issue that we were having anyway, right? And so I think that's where we're at this point now of trying to better understand the lighting side of things, not only from the standpoint of that intensity, but also what is that spectrum that needs to be available? You know, there was a lot of research that we could never do today in academia where they were looking at the brain receptors that were responsible for light stimulation and egg production. When those birds had no eyes, they still produced eggs on a daily basis, which would suggest there are other mechanisms in the body that are responsible, likely in the brain, that are responsible for that stimulant and that that um, notice to the bird that, hey, you should be producing eggs. Right now, you've got enough daylight present. So I, I do really think it is kind of this renaissance because there's so many things revolving around it, and it appears that there are more companies and some researchers that that are becoming interested in trying to understand that role of light and how all of these various things play into what we need to provide to our birds
2: very interesting just gets more and more complicated the more we look
0: always seems like it
2: but that's what makes it fun um kind of to talk a little bit about animal welfare you know I mentioned that we tend to be a little bit reactive and not as proactive. Is there anything you see on the horizon? And this could be about layers, broilers, turkeys, ducks, anything. Is there any animal welfare issue you see becoming, um, you know, close to becoming a popular enough issue that it would be involved in a mandate or uh, welfare programs that consumers will demand? What What are we missing on the industry side that's coming down the pike?
0: Well, I, I don't know... Okay, my crystal ball is really murky, just as is everyone's, right? Um, I think part of it right now is trying to, as our different industries look at our consumers, trying to get a better pulse on where their values lie, right? Because that's ultimately what's going to drive some of the welfare things is... We can give them all the science they want, but that's not what they want. It's that emotional connection, and it's that it falls within my value system, which means it's super complicated. We're never going to get it right. So we're going to have to, as researchers, try to give the best science available related to welfare and well-being as we can industry then to be able to work with their scientific advisory groups and whoever their consultants are to say, here's where the science is. Here's where the consumers are. Now, where do we find that medium so that we're overlapping? We're never going to meet, but can we overlap enough that everybody's having a win-win scenario? So if we look at laying hens as of now, there hasn't been any sort of an animal welfare mandate related to keel bones. We know Mm -hmm. it's an issue. So that's something that I think is coming. Hopefully not, but the reality is it probably is. Same with beak trimming. Mm -hmm. We see it with um, calling the males, right? Mm -hmm. So there's certain topics. And that's where I think every industry needs to reflectively look back and say, just because we do this and we have always done this, are there things now that we need to be aware of that this isn't going to fly if we started to tell people, this is how we do this. And this is why we do it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little bit of that starting to bubble up in the Turkey industry. When you start looking at the use of Tom's versus hens and how we view those um, two differences, you know, broilers, let's be honest, slow grow was the slap to the industry to say, whoa, 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 you need to put the brakes on. There's something else we need to be thinking about. And so I I think it's, I don't know that there's one topic. I think there's some things that may be common across all of our industries, but Mm -hmm. it's more just trying to figure out, okay, where might someone come and decide to poke our bubble with their needle to say, we don't like this at all. Why don't you do it this way? Those are the things, and it's hard to do, right? Because mm-hmm. we are invested in what we do, and we're trying to always do what we think is best, but sometimes it's, it's always hard for any of us to stop mm-hmm. and really look back and take that hard look and say, is that the best thing that we should be doing?
2: Yes. Some open-mindedness goes a long way. Exactly. It is difficult. It's tricky because the customers are driving, or the consumers are driving our customers. And right. then our customers come to us and say, by 2025, you're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. And we're over here going, oh, I didn't know by 2025 I was doing X, Y, and Z. This is a pretty slow moving ship, you know, especially on, on the side of layers or turkeys where you have a much longer time to turn over birds um, or on the broiler breeder side. I mean, that's a substantial investment to completely change, change something there or evaluate it. So it's a little bit tricky. a little bit
0: tricky. (laughs) I think
2: I I certainly agree with you that, you know, having being self-reflective and trying to come up with the why of why we do something in a way that is easily communicable to both the public and I think some of these customers, like if you have a Walmart or McDonald's and they say jump, you kind of have to say how high, so... Having something to come back to them with and say, no, look, here's the science of why we do this. Maybe you should reconsider these things. Or here's, here's what we found out we can compromise.
1: Yep, it exactly. takes a lot of
2: work. You're doing very beneficial work on the side of evaluating all of these different myriad questions about animal welfare. Um, on, the, on the layer side, I have heard recently that internationally, some countries are mandating that the the male layers have to be reared. For meat production as opposed to being humanely euthanized after hatch is that something you think we're likely to see in the us in the future
0: well you know it's always ironic because it tends to be if something happens in europe about 15 years later we tend to say okay yeah we probably should be doing it here as well um let's be honest there could be some positives to that from the standpoint of additional meat production but it is not going to look like anything that the consumer is used to seeing if they start to buy those types of meat products, right? That doesn't mean that we couldn't have very creative ways that we start to use those types of products and produce something that the, the consumers would want to purchase. But again, it's, it's that thinking outside of the box of here's your, here's your challenge, Now figure out how we can do something with it that's going to benefit everyone. And where I find enjoyment is seeing in the college kids and the younger kids that are still in high school where they're rising to the challenge now to say, we think we can do this differently now. I think those are the people that our industries as a whole should be watching for. And it doesn't matter what their age is, but if they're really that far uh, forward thinking, would you not want to try to get them as quickly as you could to, you know, just have that interaction to see where would they push some things very differently? It's, um, I'm all about doing this with my students, right? It's not the fact that they need to have the answer. It's what they can bring to the conversation that tells me I didn't think about it that way and they have a really good point. And so maybe we should have a different conversation to kind of see what was I missing that I never thought about it from that perspective.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. That's a great point, particularly because, as you mentioned, we have kind of a generational divide in the industry where there's kind of a cohort that is nearing retirement and a cohort that's entering the industry and not a whole lot in between in a lot of areas. So we're losing a lot of generational knowledge with the retirement of, you know, those older vets who are around to see birds in pasture, probably. Yep. <laughs> um, and then you have this this new group that has grown up with you know the animal welfare movements and social media, and have all these different ideas and and feel differently about everything. So mm-hmm. it's good to get both perspectives. I kind of wonder if it would be possible to kind of move those male byproduct into pet food. You know, pet food is absorbing a ton of rendered poultry product right now to the point where we can't get pet food quality poultry meal anymore. It's too expensive. So I wonder if there might be an outlet there. The the number of people. Who are are looking for you know high end pet food seems to be increasing all the time.
0: Exactly, exactly. So,
2: perhaps, perhaps in the future. Um, and then before we kind of wrap up, I have one more somewhat selfish question for you. Do you have any advice on maintaining eggshell quality late in lay?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the uh, Taj Mahal for every poultry species (laughs) that is trying to produce eggs longer in life isn't it yes You, you know it's it's interesting because we as an industry always struggled with conventional cage and so you boost them with vitamin d and maybe a little bit of phosphorus and calcium and you know so you're trying to put more mineral in hoping that they'll do a better job of depositing You're going to try to control that egg size to have that smaller egg for the amount of calcium. And what we're seeing with the cage free and moving to that extensive system is that with this change in calcium dynamics, we actually can go a longer period now before we start to see that detriment in shell quality. And so we're getting a little bit further out. We know that there's some genetic selection that's occurring that's helping as well. But really, our go-to still is saying, okay, how do you give that vitamin D, phosphorus, and calcium to them in a different form so that hopefully they can utilize it more effectively in putting together that shell that they need to on, on the eggs? And so, unfortunately, the response is still, all we can do is change the nutrition a little bit to see if we can help strengthen that shell coming out of those birds.
2: Fair enough. That's a good answer. Thank you. It's time for
1: our Famous 3. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like high D to next generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com anh to learn more about our newest solutions.
2: Well, uh, we usually wrap up the podcast by asking our guests the same three questions. Uh, the first of which is, can you recommend a favorite book or resource related to your field for our audience to check out?
0: So I think probably for my field, my favorite resource right now is probably the um, poultry science journal, right? Trying to stay on top of whatever that cutting edge science is that's being done around the world actually now with the way our our journal has changed. Mm
2: -hmm. That's a great one. Definitely my number one go-to for sure. Um, As far as something outside of your field, is there a book or resource you can recommend? And this doesn't have to be work-related at all.
0: Yep. So for that, actually... I listen to tons of science podcasts, right? Because for me, that's what helps me think of a crazy idea that we've never thought about in our industry because somebody in astronomy decided they were going to do something. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if that could apply to what we do, right? And so for me, it's listening to other science podcasts and things to make me think bigger about what we do. And maybe there's something we could do a little bit differently.
2: That's a great answer. What a great way to have some more creative thinking about the problems we're facing. Yeah. Especially if someone else has solved a similar problem in another industry. Exactly. (laughs) Don't reinvent the wheel. (laughs) Excellent. And then lastly, if you think about the people in your life that you consider to be successful, what characteristics do you think set them apart and enable their success?
0: So I think for me, where I chalk it up to how, what I consider to be very successful people, um, they've got you know a natural leadership capacity, right? And that can take lots of different ways because we know every leader is a little bit different. Um, but the other thing is that those that I think are very successful are the ones that can push the envelope and they can have the influence to get some others behind them because they can see the bigger potential outcome. And so those are the people that I'm looking for not only to you know add to my team because I, I want to help them do that better, but those are the people that I'm looking for to interact with because I know that that's what helped them get to where they're at and they've probably got some things they can teach me to help me push that envelope even further.
2: Hmm, that's a good point. It helps to have someone else to push you, for sure. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Carter. It was a really fruitful discussion about the Renaissance in poultry science. I'm excited to see what research comes out of your lab in the future. Uh, and I'll be on the lookout for, you know, any uh, extension events and workshops because I can always stand to learn a little bit more about layers.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun.
2: Anytime. We would welcome you back anytime. I hope you have a great rest of the week. Thanks. You too. Thank you. Bye.